Welcome back to another One Whole Life podcast with me. I'm Sean Francis. Today's episode's pretty cool. Samantha Livingstone wears a lot of hats. In this podcast, we talked a lot about Samantha's origin story of how she became an Olympic gold medalist, the parts of the process that created an eating disorder and how she overcame that eating disorder and mental health, mental chatter. And that mental chatter was in her mind even while she was breaking the Olympic record. We also talked about her road to recovery and how the event of a child almost dying is actually what sped up her recovery more so than anything else. So check out this episode where Samantha shares her process and what she's learned through this entire process and how she's using that to help other people through whole health sport, mental health first aid, and samanthalivingstone.com. Everybody, it's without further ado, it is my honor to share with you this episode of Samantha Livingstone. Confucius said we have two lives, and the second begins when we realize that we only have one. We're all given one whole life. And when we find and break the barriers that are preventing us from living fully, we have an audacious attempt to improve mental health. One Whole Life with Sean Francis. I went to your Wikipedia, I went to your website, I kind of saw like everything you've done, which is incredibly impressive with Mm -hmm. Olympic gold medal in Sydney. And um, now, but like, how did you, and why did you get into mental health after that? Like, was Mm -hmm. it always an issue? Was it family stuff like that? Like what, what was the push? I love it. I love that you're asking. Oh, I love new questions too. So I struggled. I didn't know at the time that I was navigating mental illness. I know now what, because I know, right. As an adult, what, like what depression is, what anxiety is. Um, And so I would say that my first experience with depression and a depressive low was when I was 15. And then again, post-Olympic. So I was 18 when I won the gold medal. And then I went off to my first year of school. And at that time I got help, which saved my life. Um, and there weren't like, we didn't use the clinical language. It wasn't until I was an adult, right. 13 years later when my daughter needed open heart surgery. And then I was like traumatized from that experience truthfully, because she, her, her surgery was successful, but the post-op experience was extremely tumultuous. So that left me then with an adult with this label of like PTSD. And so healing. Yeah. So really learning to accept and understand that we can get into like um, I'm, it's, you know, you can ask anything truly because yeah. that experience of learning to live with that trauma allowed me to heal wounds that I didn't know were still open, right. Yeah. From my <laughs> athletic journey. Yep. So that's, that's really the catalyst would be for why mental health today is definitely my daughter's open heart surgery and my experience of living, you know, having mental illness come visit me. I like to say versus me living with it yeah. um, as an adult and, and healing. Yeah. So can we talk about like what happened at 15 or did you have to look back and go, oh, that's what Mm -hmm. was going on versus at 15, not having any idea? I knew I was. Well, so what was happening was I was in a toxic, abusive club environment. Okay. That was what was happening. Right. And so the coaches were talking about our bodies. They were sexually harassing us. It was really unhealthy and it was all joke. Like everyone would laugh. So as a young girl in a bathing suit with a changing body and everyone's just making a joke of it. I just went inward. I didn't have the language. I didn't know. I, I didn't really feel like I, it, it was 
so commonplace that I didn't feel like it was something I'd go home and tell my mom about. Right. But I went yeah. inward and I started, I mean, started to go dark and my mom did notice. I remember her saying, you know, asking me, it was a really powerful moment of like, do you even want to swim anymore? Cause I was purposely getting kicked out of practice. And now I was like, so type A it's like, do, you know, if you gave me a to-do list, I do that plus more. And so that was so unusual for me. So it was a pretty drastic change in behavior, but I didn't have the language to say, here's what's happening until much later on. Um, yeah. It's fascinating. Like, so I, I don't know if you know anything about me, but um, I was a professional pole vaulter for a long mm-hmm. time. And there's an mm-hmm. issue going on in our sport where um, at the state meet or even conference meets, they weigh kids right in front of everybody to make sure they're good enough to, or like under their weight of their pole. And the idea is safety. Like that's how they label it. Mm. But it's like, it's, it's a broken old rule. So we're trying yeah. to change that for like almost a s- similar reasons that you are like, why yeah. body shame the weight of, well, guys feel the same way. What I found out was that if they are perceived as scrawny, it's, it's like the same trauma response as a girl mm. being perceived as big. So mm-hmm. Yeah. So when that was happening, culturally, right? Yeah. yeah, It's, it's insane. I feel like the shift is changing though, which is why I'm, I love having this conversation with you. But, um, so when you were in that environment, were were your parents able to help or how did you navigate Mm -hmm. that? Or did you just kind of go inward? I went inward. I went inward. I mean, I was, yeah, I think as an adult, you look back and you're like, I was writing a list of potential people that might come to my funeral. I mean, that's, I was navigating, yeah, suicidal thoughts. I was withdrawing. And I also had, you know, the same coaches were telling me that they believed in me and also talking to me this way. So it was so deeply confusing, right? How could someone that cared about you also mistreat you? Yeah. So that rumbling and turning inward, I just went in more and more inward. And my mom, she noticed that I was spending more time in my room and that my swimming completely plateaued. And I had just given up my... I played soccer, club soccer for a long time. And so I had just given up soccer to like commit to swimming because these coaches said, you know, you, you, you can make Olympic trials. You know, they were the first to really believe in me in that way. And so that, that conversation when my mom asked me, do we even want to swim anymore? And I was like, no. And then she said, well, what about if we changed teams? And I'm like, yes. So she knew, but she just, yeah. she had no idea to what extent till I was an, a 36 year old woman who was processing them. Yeah. Right. God, yeah. that's, that's super cool. You had a mom like that though, instead of yeah. just like a suck it up parent, you know, it's just, Oh yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> like and she, you know, painting the picture up, like she, you know, there were four of us. My dad had a family business that he was running. She was like working three jobs, going back to school. So it was not, it wasn't just like so easy. It was a huge commitment and sacrifice that they made. And I'm very, it's one of those moments that you felt like a cellular shift of feeling seen, you know, yeah. you're like, Oh, it they felt like t- yeah, time was frozen and it felt, yeah, it felt so good that she noticed, even though I didn't have the words to explain what was happening inside. Yeah. Like yeah. a mother's intuition or something like that. Mm-hmm. Going on. Um, mm-hmm. So, so 15 and then when, when did you switch clubs? Then, then 15. And then did it, did it get better pretty quick after that? Or were yeah. you still, <laughs> still? Well, so the seeds, I like to say that the seeds were planted. And so that, that experience, um, And then having, you know, witnessing abuse in other places in my life, plus that experience going into an environment with that new club where the scale was on the deck. So that felt like, oh, that's just what we do. And that felt a lot better than someone commenting on my body sexually. So there was this, right, the changing culture 
was so powerful and life-giving that those other pieces that also added to the right added to what became a roaring eating disorder um where it was a mix it was both and right it was a culture that was life-giving as well as had these components where it was tough yeah so okay so i heard eating disorder so is that yeah that happen at 15 on too then or or no the seeds were planted and it was when i so what happened 15 transferred clubs was like let the lights got turned back on inside of me. I felt awesome. alive again. Yeah. yeah, I felt like it was a place where hard work was fun and and you know you had the music pumping and like you just you, if you became you felt like you belonged part of yeah. the community. You were proud to be part of this team, and so that experience my times then started to just drop and I was able to go from you know a junior national level all the way up to making nationals and then becoming eighteen and under national champion within a very short period of time. Yeah, yeah. So that year before the Olympics, I was, was at that club team, but my graduating class had gone off to college and I decided to stay home because, you know, the transition. So mm-hmm. it's hard, right? Being away, really being away from home. So I stayed home that year and it was a trip out to the USOPC actually. That was, I think, the, that like drop that spilled over, right? And became yeah. in disordered eating, which just could continue to gain momentum where they did analysis of my stroke and my body and all the things. And they basically said to me, your stroke is 99.9% efficient. You can't change your technical component. So you need to lose weight and stay to, you know, maintain your strength. So that body weight to strength ratio, which that wasn't even part of the conversation. It was just like, you need to lose weight, maintain your strength or get stronger and keep your weight the same. So that was like the two paths. And that then led to what I heard was I'm fat you know, I'm 16 at the time. And my coach heard, Oh, let's get stronger. Right. Like let's clean up our diet. And and we just never talked about it. And we've talked about it since. Um, and he just actually passed away two weeks ago. So I am. Yeah. Yeah. Really like it's pretty raw. And I'm so grateful that we, we had those conversations as adults to heal through those moments because that was the catalyst that then became an obsession. You can see it in my log books Mm. where I went from tracking our, you know, like my distance for stroke and swimming, all this, all the things that are swimming specific to then just really obsessing over food. And that spiraled into an eating disorder by the time that I got to school. So post Sydney. Jeez. Mm -hmm. That's, that's wild. Mm -hmm. Huh? And so after, after, okay. There seems to be a lot to digest in There is a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, it's just really cool though. Um, so can we, can we go back to the Olympic training center stuff a little bit? Yeah. Uh, because I, I ran into the same thing where, um, we, we would be put in these meetings and I'm sure it's probably super similar and you go, Oh, I feel like the first time I went, I was like, I'm good enough to make it to one of these meetings. Like that, that's, mm-hmm. I feel pretty good about it. And I left yeah. feeling completely defeated because they're just like, you're not doing this. The French are doing better than this or, mm-hmm. you know, and then they start, you know, you got to get your diet you got to be stronger you're not fast enough and then you leave going oh my god now i have this bucket of stuff but little do they know like i decided to you know get my master's degree but then not go to work and live with my parents and so you're mm-hmm. like sac- sacrificing all these other things mm-hmm. and then you go home going i don't know if i want to participate in in that anymore that's how i felt at least mm-hmm. and it sounds like you had a somewhat similar experience where you go 
I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're excited. No, it wasn't. It, it was disempowering. Disempowering, so yeah. Comment, it was totally disempowering. So it was the same level of excitement and feeling like I'm here. I've been invited here. And like, how cool is this? And then instantly the, the support around that world opening up to you and realizing, oh, what, at that time there was a resident team that was living there. And so you're, you're just like, oh, they do all these things. And for me, it actually, but the, the worst conversation that came from our training camp. So, you know, that conversation around my body and, and all of that was hard and it led to a pretty not great outcome at the Olympic training camp. So you made, they made the team and then they brought in a speaker with supplements, like talking about, you need this, you need that. So we're literally like weeks away from competing at the Olympics. And I'm quite like similar, like I'm questioning, Oh, I didn't know people took all these different things. Like yeah. you have to take this before you eat. And I was just a girl drinking some protein powder, right at 18, <laughs> yeah. not knowing. And I remember buying and I was on the phone with my club coach. And so I've since the national team director is, the, is Lindsay and who we've, she, we swam together and we've competed on the relay together. And yeah. I've said that to her. I'm like, don't please tell me you don't do this anymore because that is so disempowering when it's supposed to be this magical time, right? Where you walk it in and feel confident. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So f from there, and that was the training camp and it was disempowering. Mm -hmm. Was mm -hmm. the Olympics like a whole different level? Or was it more of the same kind of like, mm -hmm. oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be? Or was it mm -hmm. bigger than you thought it was going to be? I mean, you're a fresh kid. Yeah. Totally <laughs> kid. And yeah. I think, yeah, thinking I wasn't, I mean, we, so the, the experience, when you say like Olympics and being there, like the village itself was such, it was so cool. Like it was such yeah. a powerful experience of being able to be immersed with other athletes. And then the hardest part was swimming for a different coach, right? So you're training with this coach who gets you to this space. And then now all of a sudden you're like whisked away with this other crew who has a very different style of training. And that I, I, I felt like I was floundering a bit there and kind of finding my way because I had been on national team trips before, but the hardest part for me was the food. Mm. So feeling like I had no idea what I was doing because I had come from like, we, it was so regimented and controlled. And then you go into you know foreign country, like they don't have the same kinds of things that we do. Yeah. And so that experience um, was hard for me. Until I had, I, I share this story as one of the most powerful Olympic moments until I was standing in line and I was like, what, I can't eat any of this. Like this isn't on my plan. Right. And there was a, like a couple of athletes behind me who were talking about the gluttonous amount of food. Like it was so much food and people back home in their country. Like they, they were having the hardest time being in that space with all the food choices. Wow. Right. So quite yeah. a moment for me of perspective. And it was like, Whoa. So so I think, yeah, there's just a lot to take in and I don't, you know, you, we get really good as athletes at kind of just like pushing stuff down or away and just focusing, focusing. on what we need to do, <laughs> yeah. that that was my sole focus. And why am I back in the athletic arena doing mental health and talking about this? Because it was actually when I, in 2016, I found my log books from the Olympic village and I had two of them. One was where I was like my truest self, I would say excited and inspired. And then the other was completely purely the inner critic. Yeah. It's really fascinating. I'm like, anyone want to study these? Like you could yeah. probably learn something. Mine looks the same way. actually. Does it? Well, yeah. yeah and I always explain it to kids. Like I, I, I gave a talk at 
the Reno pole vault summit, which is a, the biggest yeah. indoor pole vault, um, meet in the, in the world. And, um, I was like, a, a kid goes, or a parent asked me, how do you keep a kid from burning out? Or mm. what if they don't want to do it anymore? I was like, first, maybe they don't, and that's okay. But yeah. if you go back, why they started, they started because it's fun. Like mm-hmm. pole vaulting specifically, you're running with a stick and, and using it to jump over another stick. You know, <laughs> it's just a really fun, goofy sport. And um, but it seems like, especially for me too, that's why I started. And then it was like scholarships and NCA stuff. And then mm-hmm. if you make this team, you'll do this. And if you go here, you'll do this. And then it was mm-hmm. all this stuff, almost hiding that core essence of mm-hmm. why I started in the first place. And so I, I try to tell that parent, like, just, and it's so simple to say, but it's so hard to find is like, just remember why you started. But mm-hmm. like, if you keep that in the focus all the time, it's usually just, it's, it's fun. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, it's, totally. Yeah. 100%. I'm with you. That yeah. Is, okay, that is cool. Beautiful. Yeah. Because that's, it's exactly right. And it can get so lost. And at the end of the day, that's exactly like the water still to this day feels like home. Like it's, I just yeah. love being in the water and I love competing. Right. And love right. doing hard things. So of course, right. That's yeah. what drew me in to begin. I love that you shared that. Did they yeah. receive it well? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it was my first talk I've ever given on Mattel. So it was like, I was yeah. terrified the whole time and going, I don't know if I should tell you what you need to hear. And so you know, like, I was kind of like fighting that the whole time. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. you might not like what I'm going to say, but <laughs> you know, I can of- relate. Well, I relate to that. So for 16 yeah. years, I told the version of the girl who journeyed to gold and didn't, and I talked about like the hard work, but I didn't talk about what we're talking about. Yeah. I didn't reveal that. Cause I, exactly what you're saying with fear of this isn't the Hallmark version that you want to hear. Like this isn't the NBC special. (laughs) This is real life. And those, you know, national team members, people who've competed at a high level, like, it's like, yeah, thank you for saying that. Cause actually that's real. Like that's really what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm so happy you're sharing this. Like it just opened up a door. So I was going to ask too, because do you think it's almost a disservice to not share what the whole in Olympic process is because there mm-hmm. are some gross sides to it. There's, there's yeah. some very beautiful sides to it too, but it seems to be sold in like the Olympics, you know, patriotism and do this for your country. And especially we're mm-hmm. like in the winter Olympics right now. And, and those are the stories being pushed out, but mm-hmm. like you've already shared with me, there's these ugly sides that mm-hmm. aren't helpful <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's exactly. So the, my first, you know, healing the catalyst, right? My daughter's open heart surgery. Now I'm trying to heal from this trauma. And then I'm realizing, oh, that 18 year old girl, like she still needs some love, like from, from that Olympic experience. Yeah. And then we, I start rumbling with that question of, can you cultivate greatness and be healthy? Like, can you actually get there and be healthy? <laughs> Meanwhile, in the Rio games, watching, you know, swimmers I swam with acting in bizarre ways like their behavior right i'm not sure if you remember from the rio games you know with the whole ordeal that went down with some with the swimmers and watching that and rumbling with that question and i do i really i mean that's why i do the work i do because i feel like that there is a way that we can honor our whole self and also achieve greatness and and no it's not going to be easy and it's not going to all you know have this it's not going to all be pretty right it's, there are going to be hard and difficult moments. I think that the part we can drop is the shame, the silence, the suffering. Like 
Mental illness will be part of that story too. How we respond to it, how we talk about it, the supports that are in place for it. We can do so much to equip coaches, right? To, to with the language, to equip athletes themselves so that it's not that their experience is void of mental illness or struggle, that they're supported, right? Yeah. You, you know, on that journey. So, so yeah, I, I, you know where I struggled when Michael, so Michael Phelps and I were teammates in Sydney. It was his first Olympics. And I struggled with my silence, listening to him, watching him, you know, go through the hard things that he was going through and then watching, you know, Allison who followed at Georgia. So we, we didn't overlap at all. Allison Schmidt, who started to talk about her journey with mental illness. And I realized like my silence isn't serving anyone. So here are these generations of athletes coming after me. I had to really for, like work on forgiving myself for that and understand that I just wasn't ready yet. Um, because I think like what would have happened if I, you know, like if I had said something would their experience or journey have been different. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think silence serves us at all. No, no. And, and it's like, and then the, and then being the authentic honesty, you know, is that other part of it too, which I, mm-hmm. I think is really important. Um, you were just talking about um, where, where where was most of your motivation coming from for for dropping these times swimming really fast? Like, what what uh, was that? Yeah, which one do you want? What answer? What version? So know, yeah, <laughs> how, it, how it started. I will truly say that, like one with a hundred percent like authentic honesty, that you that that child in me had such wonder. And this was so lit up by watching women, Mia Hamm, soccer player, national team member when I was growing up and someone I idolized, like witnessing women in sports, like display their greatness and magic was something that I was like, I want, I want that. And at first it was like gymnastics. I wanted to, you know, have that be the vehicle. And then I'm like almost six feet tall. So that didn't work (laughs) out. Right. And then soccer. And it was, it was, you know, I played club soccer and loved it. And that became super political. You know, it's a team sport, playing time. Yep. And I also moved through the water and had success very early on. So I think that my drive and wonder was inspired by watching female athletes. Like the Olympics were on pay-per-view back in 92. Like I was such, like a young <laughs> right. girl. And then I met at a New England banquet. Um, I met an Olympian and I'm like, you're human. Like you're a real, like I, I can do this too. And so there was wonder and awe. And this curiosity that just like, I want, like, I want to know what that's like. And then that became, you know, where exactly, you know, did it transfer? It was like a slow burn into perfectionism and achieving to be loved. Like I felt like I had to achieve. Achievement was my armor to stay safe and protected, um, to try to be seen. And so that when I got to the top of the podium, now you're like, I just achieved, we we broke the Olympic record as well. So like we win and yet that didn't shut off my inner critic. So that was the moment for me that was so confusing because I thought that if I had just got there, then I, you know, then I'd be happy inside. And so the story that I believed at the time was, oh, because I didn't make it in my individual event. And then you start to talk to other athletes and it's like, oh, like one medal is not enough. Five medals isn't enough. Like it's just, it, it, nothing is. Yeah. Right. I so, call it chasing an infinity, right? Like if you're yeah. ever chasing something that has no end, you're just, it's always going to end. No end. Pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and that, that is the level of acceptance around, we can't look externally for that. Like that's the work, right? 
And that, so the sport, youth sports industry, I mean, I, what I try to, what I wrestle with, not even that I figured it out yet. So this is like super messy. I was a young girl with a dream. And if I didn't have parents that allowed me to have that wild dream, like I, I'm, I'm so grateful that they did, even though they're like, you haven't even made the swim team. You're nine. Like you're late <laughs> to the game. Like, what are you thinking? You're going to make the Olympic team. And they just let me have wild dreams. And I now hear parents so often disqualify and like put the disclaimer on my kid will never be an Olympian, but you know, and it's like, why I, so I, I wrestle, I don't like that box because I like, you know, who knows what your child might be interested in. And then the other side of that is those that force it and want like, right. The parent that is trying to drive it home and force something on the kid or make them do all these different things to get an outcome. Um, yeah. So what's that path, you know, letting the child lead, I think. Yeah. And, and sure. allow giving them permission to dream, yeah. letting them hold that open, you know? So, so when, when did that like a uh, spark, was that around the 15 where that started to like die yeah, and then, and then mm-hmm. like your fuel for going to practice was completely different than like fun and enjoyment. And it was more like having to get these marks, having to get these times, having to like, do all so it ne- you know, as you say that and ask me that, so I will say no, cause I yeah. actually really loved, I loved working hard. Okay. And like the coach, you know, and there's been lots of writing because he passed away just a few couple weeks ago and so much reflection, so many stories of being reunited with former teammates. And it's like, he would try so hard to throw a set at me that I would just like, you know, break. I'd bust, like I'd <laughs> yeah. just break. Right. Yeah. And it was like, we would go back and forth. Cause I would just like, I would do, I would give everything that I had to be able to just look at him. Like, that's all you got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I loved working hard. And I, I loved racing and I didn't, I didn't feel the pressure until I had the gold medal okay. to then like, how am I supposed to walk, talk, act, dress? Like then I had to perform because every time you stand up behind the blocks, then you're now the Olympic gold medalist. Right. And that just felt very heavy. And that was a massive burden going into 2004 trials. I was not prepared for that one. So, so I think. Yeah. So I, I would say, no, that's, I just haven't, I haven't really, it hasn't been asked that way. Yeah. This is like where you're going to, for me to say, no, I I actually wanted to go to practice um, because it was something that I was chasing. So there was that wonder. Yeah. So that was all all through college too. Then you still had the like love for, for those. No. So So it was Olympic gold Olympics (laughs) done. And then that did not come back until I healed. So I needed okay. shoulder surgery. I had to heal from my eating disorder and depression. That was really, really dark. Um, and that, so physically, mentally, like all of it, I had to heal. So I swam my first year. Um, that's a wild trippy story. I don't know if we want to talk about that, just <laughs> the logistics of it. I was erging instead of swimming because my shoulder was so inflamed. Yeah. Um, and then took a red, that red shirt year to heal. And so during those two years, I was able to work with Greg Harden, who was, he just retired from Michigan for two years. And we, I just healed physical, like physical body healed from my eating disorder, moved into recovery, healed my mind. He introduced me to mindfulness. Awesome. So I was like, yeah. So, so that experience allowed me to then I feel like fly. And I, I ended up transferring to Michigan and going down to Georgia and that love 
it was hard coming back from injury. I mean, oh, really yeah. hard. Yeah. I, I had so, shoulder surgery too, and I can totally relate. Uh, yeah, it's rough. It's, so it was it's like so it was my rough. top arm, you know, which is like the one that takes all the pressure yeah. from a pole. And it was like I can't even hang up from a high bar right now. How am I gonna run full speed into a stick? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then Did you come back in your career? Did you yeah. be able to get back to? Yeah, my story is kind of funny. I, uh, I, it, it hurt it, and then I had I had the best year um, up until that point. Um, I got like fifth at the at nationals that year or U.S. championships, and then um, that next year, I was like on a kind of a high. Like I can do this. Mm. I can compete with these guys. But my shoulder just wouldn't allow me to even mm. hang on to it. So uh, I went to a shoulder surgeon, and he was like, "You'll never pull vault again." like ever, you know, mm. it's just the end of your career. And I was like, eh, I'm going to need a second opinion. Second yeah. guy said the same exact thing. Third uh. guy said the same thing. And then uh, I, I have a friend who was like, you know, those guys work on old lady shoulders all the time. Maybe yeah. you should be a, a sports surgeon someplace. So somehow I, he had a connection with the Minnesota Twins shoulder surgeon. So he works oh, on cool. athletes all the time and knows, yeah. knows shoulders. So I went and Psalms like, if he says no, I guess I guess this is it. And he goes, yeah, it's a little banged up, but uh, we can get you in in two weeks, and then you'll be back vaulting in six months. Not well, but within a year you'll be vaulting really high again. And I was like, yeah. sign me up, you know, like and and do it. And I think that confidence he instilled in me that was like, oh yeah, we got this. I've seen this with athletes a million times, and I know you're going to do the rehab and the therapy and all that mm -hmm. stuff instead of like old lady shoulder guy you know <laughs> and then uh you kept getting it that's amazing yeah and and so that was that was 2011 then 2012 was was the olympics that year and mm -hmm. came up in, in in short from making the trials to to recover but then by 2014 i was jumping like prs and you know awesome. all over again so yeah yeah similar story but it was really hard to come back like in it it broke me in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it is mentally, it, it, you know, physical injury. And, and then there's this, we, which is not talked about. And in fact, like, so part of the work I do now around teaching and, and, and certifying adults in mental health first aid is like injury is a risk factor for mental illness. I didn't know that. And that makes so much sense. Right. I'm like right. sidelined with this shoulder that needed surgery. Now you're taking away the thing that I love and I'm going to try to control what I can by manipulating food and right. So it just was this whole, yeah, yeah it's not talked about um, maybe because we're just supposed to power through it, but that's the right. old narrative. That's that the old narrative. Yeah. Die. Yeah. And it's unpredictable, right? Like no one talks about that either, which is mm -hmm. like, I don't know as you as an athlete, but you get safe in these routines of knowing, all right, I got my week scheduled. Mm -hmm. I got my month scheduled. I got nine months scheduled. And then on injuries, like what do I grab onto just to feel grounded yeah. again? Because your whole world flips upside down, totally. Yeah, totally. And then you don't know what you're going to wake up, right? That process. <laughs> I was just talking to a PA who does ACLs all day, repairs. And I'm like, I remember vividly looking at the dotted ceiling and counting dots as I would get my scar tissue stretched back. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. We'll not forget that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember throwing a soup can because that's all I could lift, you know, when we were doing like, oh, yeah. my goodness, yes. <laughs> yeah, like I can do a, I can do Campbell's soup. That's as strong oh as gosh. I am right now. Yeah. It's, was, well, yeah. is your shoulder, is that arm stronger than the other one? Mine is like from all the rehab and repair. 
Yeah, well, I, it was. It, I was getting my master's in biomechanics, so I was okay. very in tune with like I don't want to have any imbalances on either side. So oh, I'd, I'd almost yeah. do rehab on both shoulders at the same time, Smart. just so. Yeah, I, yeah. Grad school helped a little bit in some yeah. aspects, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was just curious about that motivation question because I I run into and I was one of those for a while where it started out really kind of beautiful and coming from a good place, and then mm-hmm. that like. I'm going to be better than you kind of like mm. the, these, it's almost like negative. I hate mm. to call it negative, just it, more painful fuel, I guess you could say for, for going to practice every day was mm. help me be successful in a lot of ways too. And I don't know if you, you ever experienced anything like that either, but yeah, um, tell me more. Yeah. It was like, uh, I, I have like a, a, a trauma of you're not good enough kind of a thing mm-hmm. so if I missed a practice or something it was like oh you better go or you're not good enough and so mm-hmm. that like painful thing got me to practice a lot of times and when I got there mm-hmm. a lot of it was like really fun because I'm like you like I want to get I want to know where my edge is and if I mm-hmm. got there I was like awesome I know where it is now and I know how to push harder next time yeah. but uh, a lot of those were like that led to some of the shoulder pain which was like all right it hurts a lot whole bunch if you were listening to your body you'd probably take a day off but instead you're like ah eh, you, you got to push harder someone else is going to be trying harder than you yeah. and you're not try harder you know that kind of a thing oh just try harder just yeah. try harder yeah mm-hmm. and and so that was a retweak that i had to have in my brain later and i wish i had it sooner mm-hmm. but it was like taking days off is training <laughs> you know? oh totally no one talks that's about real that. yeah no? it's so real yeah. even professional so i've worked with elite athletes like i mean they're adults and it's like rest is actually part like rest is the best thing for your body today. oh it's the most that, important part yeah right like deload oh. and then yeah it in and even in the sport of swimming which is so fascinating to me rest is like what you you taper like you purposely rest to optimize your performance and yet yeah so that the never enough absolutely i think that that um you know, part of my story was trying, you know, just really, even though my dad loved me, misunderstanding, not misunderstanding, it was just my perception um, growing up and I, which was my reality, which was, I wanted him to be proud of me and articulate that. And so when I would come home, there was one meet in particular where I laid out, I was at a college pool and broke 10 pool records and out of 11 events and I got second place in the 11th event. Some of them are still standing, which is wild to me. Yeah. Like how many years later? Wow. Yeah. And I show him my like t-shirts or whatever I get. And he picks up the second place medal. And so you're like, you know, he was joking. So we've healed. Thankfully, you know, that relationship has strengthened. And we've had some really honest conversations about the hard that I experienced as a kid. And that moment, you know, he was just kidding. Like he was just joking. And that was not funny to me. It was, it broke me. So on the outside, I didn't let that, you know, I think I'm, I probably went off to my room, but inside I was like, okay, note to self, like not, not, I wasn't doing this consciously, right? Like now I can look back and know what was going on, but that feeling of, okay, note to self need to be perfect, need to be perfect to be loved. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think, so was that primarily from your father? You said that was kind of coming Mm -hmm. from where you learned that. Yeah. Mine came from my dad too, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And his was always like you could win the meet or I could you know break the meet record or or whatever it was and it was always um here's what we could have done to do better Mm -hmm. and we've had that same conversation too as adults now 
where as a kid you go, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough. Yeah. I wasn't good enough. And he was just like, Oh, I, I, you were just so into it. I wanted to help you in any way that I could. So mm -hmm. it was strange. It's coming from a love, but interpreted mm -hmm. in that, you know, I feel that as a sport parent now, like I, cause I, I feel that. So you see things differently, right? You have a different perspective. So yeah. I have to be very careful to not go into that coach mode. And help, it helps that I know nothing about the sports my kids love and play. <laughs> yeah. But that feel, I feel that that's real, you know, because you do it does, and it is in in the way what I say, like because of my perfectionist lens. And to be clear for those that are listening, right? Perfectionism isn't about attention to detail. It wasn't about our hard work. It's none of that. Like that, those are all other attributes. Perfectionism is that belief that's born out of that painful place of shame of I'm not good enough, where it's like, if we just achieve this thing, look this way, act this way, like if we just do this, then we'll be protected from pain of shame, judgment, blame, right? So that, that lens, anything that we're hearing when we're, when we are, when we have that perfectionist lens on is going to be heard through that filter. So if someone's giving us feedback, of course, it's, we're not good enough. Like that's exactly what it activates, which is so painful. Right. Yeah. How, mm -hmm. so as, as a parent now, like what kind of things are you, are you aware of when, when coaching or do you just sense something? I, like, I, I did a, a podcast a few months ago where they were like, well, unfortunately you can't avoid trauma. You can do the best mm -hmm. you can. Kind of like your dad's example. Like he was joking, mm -hmm. had mm -hmm. no idea. And it's usually later you go, Oh, I didn't know the type of effect that was having, especially when you can't see in somebody's brain or how it's totally. Yeah. So uh, like, how do you navigate knowing if, it, it just, <laughs> I always get to the sense, like, if you're trying to avoid doing anything, you just can't do anything. You might as well just like lock yourself in a room and be like, stay yeah, away from right? me. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Which is, safe. that's exactly it. And I yeah. think that we're going to, some of my favorite follows on social media and like authors that I've read, they, you know, psychotherapists, people that have studied this, it's like exactly what you're saying. You cannot, we are going to like, <laughs> they use different language, colorful language, like you're going to mess up with kids. Yeah. And I think what's most important I, in, in being able to communicate that experience with my club coach who took me to the Olympics and how some of the comments and the things that he said, and then that moment at the training center, how that was so painful and connected to my mental illness, it, it, it's never out of blame. Like he should have done this or said this because there's no perfect thing to say. I think what's most important is that we create a culture within our homes and within our programs where we are honoring well-being, where we have check-ins, where we have this ongoing conversation so that it's not like, oh, okay, now we got to talk about this big thing, but it's just part of this kind of everyday rhythm of our lives where if something's bothering us, there's, we know ways that we can communicate that and provide that feedback. And that was not, I mean, just wasn't present in my, my parent, like our home growing up. And it wasn't present in the club teams a little bit more in college when I was at Georgia of, um, I had a female coach who was just so in tune. She just, yeah. you know, she, so she, it, it was easier to go to her when you were upset about things and have that conversation because that relationship was there. So, yeah, I think there is an acceptance of, it doesn't mean we throw our hands up and say like, we're just going to screw our kids up. So whatever, yeah. F it. I think we are mindful and then create opportunities. Like if we know we miss, <laughs> I'm like, so in it, like <laughs> just being, just keeping it real. Like, I, you know, like I'll show up and I'm like, oh. and then I fight myself and I'm like, 
I, like I have to be the adult. Like I need to go say, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm yeah. without, but we can get super trapped in shame of like, I knew better. I wish I hadn't said that and get swallowed by the shame that it stops us from actually. So it's, you know, modeling what an apology looks like and being able to circle back to say that didn't come out the way I wanted it to, or I noticed that you're upset about this, or it seems like you are. You want to talk to me? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the perfectionist thing, right? Like it, if you're trying so hard to not do anything wrong, you're not going to do anything, but if you, yeah. Like it's the same idea. So I'm just trying to reiterate what you're saying, but so you're saying allow yourself to almost like bump into the walls, like into the boundaries. Mm-hmm. And then when you do and you learn, you make a mistake, you actually grow and you teach the kid how to apologize, mm-hmm. do that exact same thing. Is that sort of what you're saying? 100%. I'd even right. say sometimes you step over the wall, like, cause you okay. just, ew, you're human. I think we're in that grace of not making excuses for our behavior honoring the fact that we're human and I have a trauma history and I I get triggered sometimes like that's real. And sometimes I have such levels of rage that you, you know, talking to me here, people that see me in my every would be like, what, like, how is that possible? And, you know, if I step out or when I step out, being able to kind of look at the situation, apologize for my actions and then make amends. I think that that's an important part of here's what I'm going to do differently next time. Like I, work on building my toolbox and skill set so that I don't get to that space. Right. So I'm kind of proactively honoring, like if I'm feeling myself move into a space where I'm not going to show up at the best that's in alignment with my values. And I'm going to take a moment. Like I've actually run around my house a couple of times, like, you know, like hold on, I'll back. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Right. Yeah. Whatever works. I think that in teaching our children and those that we coach and work with like the, or lead that that actually like we're going to misstep sometimes. And so if we just beat ourselves up, how are we going to grow? You know, we can't get to be able to rise and then figure out, okay, what could I do differently next time? And that takes a ton of courage because yeah. you admit you're not perfect, especially right. for those of us that have struggled with perfectionism. Yeah. I, lo- I love you're saying it, saying this because it's, even before the internet, we always had this, like, put your best self forward. Like I was taught that mm-hmm. all the time too, like dress, dress for success kind of a thing and say mm-hmm. things that people perceive you a certain way. And mm-hmm. it, it's almost like, since I've been on this journey, it's almost be messier. Like it's just almost like the message I keep getting that's healthier, mm-hmm. like be messier, be more vulnerable, say what you really feel. It might hurt somebody to hear it, but that's okay. As long as you're honest, there's like this, Authentic, authenticity kind of be, between everybody and everyone knows exactly where you stand instead of trying to Instagram but model front. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, cause that's where true connection, you know, when you think about the hardest part of wearing perfectionist armor, I mean, first of all, it's heavy and it takes so much effort to continually put that front on and never in my life did I feel that as much as I did post Olympics, right. When you're doing yeah. like the parades and it's just the whole, this is before social media. So it was like, going to the grocery store and people kind of look at you and, you know, even to be honest, going to the wake and funeral for the club coach, he still was coaching. So there's this like celebrity status. And so I found myself in this space of like, I'm grieving and I'm really upset. And is that okay for me to be crying? Like, you know, and I'm like, be, you know, so be, I think that with the perfectionist armor, the exhaustion of constantly having to keep up that you know, that just the walls and the, in that uh, um, look, you know, there's so much, so many places I could go here, but that idea that like being able to be human and allowing others to see us is such a gift because 
it's so lonely when you have that armor up, like you're no one, you, you don't feel connected to people because you're not letting them see you. Right. right? Cause you're afraid if they see you, then what? Right. Yeah. There's a reflection so, of you at that point mm-hmm. instead of like who you really are no. with the idea that you think you can actually control what they think of you. It, yeah. That's, isn't that the, the mind screw that oh, <laughs> once you learn that one, <laughs> yeah. like, what do you mean? I can't control what you think of me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I've been reading this great book where they talk about everybody has a movie going on in their own head, like their story all the time. And yeah. you're the hero of your story and they're the hero of theirs. And if you walk into a different movie theater, you can watch their movie. But everyone's acting and looking and, and dancing a little different. You know, they're not. Ah, yeah. their that's version. Cool. Yeah. And then you start to go. I'm the only version of me that I have in my movie. And like your version of me is completely different than anybody else's because of yeah. the lack of experience that we've had. Yeah. And that helped me like tremendously go, Oh, so if somebody doesn't have a high, strong opinion of me, or if they, if they, they don't like me or they do, it's all kind of neutral now because they don't mm. have a full, the full story. But like my wife, for example, has probably spent more time with me than any other human besides my parents. And so mm-hmm. her, my value of her opinion is higher because she has a more realistic view yes. of what, what my, yes. what the movie really is. If, yes. If that's beautiful. And that the, the imagery that I use is for, with that when I do workshops and talks, it's like an iceberg. So you see this, you see the story, like what you see is above the surface. And so for some it's more, but there's still always stuff underneath the surface that we just, we don't know. Right. We, right. right? And we can learn about people when they allow us to, and let us in. Um, there's always more to the story. Yeah. I'm with you there. That's beautiful. What book is it? Curious. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a copy. I can't think okay. of the title right now, but, um, it's, I think it's I love the, learning. The, I love reading. Yeah, it's a, it's it's pretty good. I think it's called the Five Truths or something like that. Oh, cool. I uh, yeah, I, I dove pretty deep into Buddhism and Zen when I was when I retired from pole vaulting. Well, I got to ask you about you yeah. you doing that too because that was a, the worst break of of my life. So I was like, yeah. depression kind of came back full force. Didn't know what to do. I was like, mm-hmm. what am I gonna do with my life? <laughs> you know, yeah, when I you know. when you realize you can't really pole vault forever, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> which, <laughs> is there which masters is, for it? Like, is is masters? Do you have masters? Yeah, they're like my actually they're my favorite pole vault group to watch oh. because oh, cool. pole vault's super hard on the body, you know. And mm-hmm. these guys are falling apart, and they only do it because <laughs> they love it. It's like seeing it. a kid try it for the first time because. Yeah it's expensive and there's no other reason to do it. And they just, they just love it. Yeah. That's cool. My friend, Don Braggs, he's 90. He just broke the world record for the 90. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> Age of That's 90. so fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you do masters swimming or any of that? I don't know. No. So I started running and I do lift and I lift, but you know, part of that is that we don't, I did swim. So I didn't touch the water and then I did swim for a little while, but our local pool is like with COVID it's been shut down for three years. So I did start to get back into it, but I, have not touched masters because I'm so competitive and I just (laughs) like, no, this is going to be something I do for me because I love the water more from the meditative experience than for exercise because swimming is so, um, I'm so efficient at it even still that it's not like I get way more bang for my buck running and lifting than I do swimming. I have to swim a lot longer. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I feel like that with biking, like I I could go mountain biking all day, like nonstop, but yeah. So, so when you, so college was like your healing 
pro well, started started it right mm -hmm. so what was it like being being done with college is that when you decided mm -hmm. like swimming was just done at that point or did you continue so, to go after that no at the time the landscape of swimming so 2000 there was no you couldn't maintain eligibility and also take metal money and like sponsorships yep. so you so i signed all that away to get my education and transferred to Georgia and won at a national championship. I mean, I think that that was like, I remember vividly signing the line of like, I will forfeit this money, whatever the heck it said. And I'm like national championship. And that was not the case. You know, it wasn't a, the best environment for me at the time at Michigan. So when I transferred part of that transfer was because the culture was healthy and also they were, you know, a powerhouse nationally. And so winning so we got second my first year of eligibility second again it's <laughs> the second year at nationals which is hard that's hard to do that's hard to do too yeah, yeah. get second <laughs> twice and then i was like no way so we won my senior year yeah oh, that's so awesome. that was like the best that was actually the other night we were watching the awards ceremony i can't even remember what it was for what event we've been watching olympics nonstop here and one of my daughters said mom, was that what, like, is that kind of, is that how you felt when you won the gold medal in Australia? And I, oh, it was the Super Bowl. It wasn't even the Olympics. So it was yeah. that celebration after the Super Bowl. And I was like, I, I, cause I'm not going to lie. Right. I'm not going to like, people want to hear. Yeah. That's exactly how I felt. And yeah. I'm like, no. And I sat with it and I'm like, you know, when I felt that when we won our national championship, because it was this like sense of accomplishing it together. And I was so healthy. Like I was healthy. I felt free in my body. I had healed from this, these hard things and was swimming really fast. So that's when I hung up my goggles and I was so young. Like I look back now and I'm like, but my, between my shoulder and all that was necessary. So I was able to swim at a high level, but it took so much, right? Yeah. I needed to do the prehab, the post, all of it. Like the amount. You never stop training. Like that's, no. I don't think yeah. people understand that. Like you go home and you have to watch what you eat and sleep and stress mm -hmm. levels. And like, it just never, yeah. No. I and, I, and so the, there was no money in the sport at the time. So for national team members and all that, I, I didn't qualify for 2004 trials, didn't make the national team then. And I retired in 2005. Okay. So timing wise, I would have had a hang in for three more years. Like I just was ready to move on with my life. Um, yeah. and I just threw myself into, I became a teacher and I was threw myself into my classroom and in coaching, which that was a trip. Yeah. Very different. <laughs> it's very different. Meeting <laughs> and coaching. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So retired happy though. So it, it was, you, you, yeah, like, you I knew. I was ready. Okay. I, I, I was, I'll tell you though, it took me until 2016 before I felt like I could watch the Olympics again, not wishing I had continued a little bit longer. Hmm. So I felt like there's still unfinished business. And at the time I was just like, you, you know what part of it was too, is like, I had healed a ton, you know, eating disorder, healing my relationship with food and my body. The perfectionist armor was still pretty thick when it came to like, is it still thick for you right now? No, no. I'm very, I feel like I'm aware of it. It it's rise. It so like okay. <laughs> yeah. And I have to put it down and I catch myself in surprising ways. I'm like, Oh, you know, and I feel like I'm aware of it and I live with way more. I mean that when your child nearly dies and you're faced to force death, you know, fake forced to force to face death, you like your world changes, you know? 
yeah. that just try harder, you're like, I thought that would work, you know? Yeah. So in that, inside of that moment, so that, that completely shattered yeah. through that experience. So so. Let's talk about that a little bit. So you, sure. all of the, all the swimming stuff, it, it's, it sounds like from early childhood, it created some of these patterns or, or I don't, I never know what to call them trauma knots or trauma, whatever, whatever you want to call yeah. these behavior patterns. And then college, you were healing, starting to heal a little bit to mm-hmm. the most part, but it sounds like that experience that you had with your daughter and in her heart, mm-hmm. that, that just kind of blasted everything to the surface to the totally. point where you just had, I had no idea. Like you didn't, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it's like, it just forced you to look at things that maybe you were avoiding or you weren't able mm-hmm. to notice at the time. And mm-hmm. and so what, what was the breaking point there? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that, I mean, that space between when like the transition that you were asking about of like, what did you do post for? I like the perfectionist armor was still there because I threw myself into running. Like I had to, and I couldn't just run. I had to race. So I had to like yeah. race, not just, a 5k because that wasn't good enough but I had to race you know half marathons and and even then I felt like that wasn't good enough it should be marathons and then Ironmans right so that that was so kind of like percolating under the surface to the point where it interfered with like then you know I'm married now I'm you know finding such joy in my life in my classroom and in relationships but that re- that inner critic while I was still nourishing my body and having that healthy relationship, it was so present in other ways, like through exercise. Cause like what's exercise when you're an athlete your whole life. <laughs> so was that, was that fueling you yeah. though? Was that like come some of that negative stuff that maybe I had that was like, all right, I need the inner critics. Like you need to go, you need to do more. You need. To oh do yeah. You can't okay. stop on a run. Cause if you stop on a run, then it yeah. doesn't count. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was and just, yes. I, I guess that's all I was asking earlier was like, did, you you obviously experienced that too then it yeah. wasn't all just peaches and rainbows you know the whole no, time. it was this no, negative yeah, yeah. You know, fuel source okay yeah sorry yeah. to interrupt but, no that I'm, I'm i like that you asked for clarity so then when um you know you you fast forward through life and i i really loved like i saw my career in education i just i absolutely love the students that i had the opportunity where i taught high school and through, you know, getting pregnant. And then my husband took a, he's a strength and conditioning coach. So he, he was kind of bebopping around. He was D one and then professional sports. And then he, he wanted to land back in college and he, a job opened to Massachusetts, which is where our fam, my family's from. And so we moved. And that was when I kind of said goodbye to my career. I'm going to be home with my kids. And the biggest, I think the first shake, like the first like earthquake to my perfectionist armor was having twins because I'm like, just two babies. What? <laughs> like, <laughs> Didn't plan that. <laughs> yeah. um, what do you mean? I'm going to have three kids under three, like what? And so you realize real quick as a parent of twins, like you can't make everyone happy all the time. And so there was some level of growing acceptance, um, but the deepest, deepest wounds were absolutely shattered. So one of the twins, so at our nine month, like well check pediatrician visit, they found a murmur which then very quickly led to surgery because it was pretty significant. And so when her heart got fixed, the surgery was wildly successful. He was very happy. He didn't have to use any artificial parts, which saves her from future surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, but her heart failed post-op and they were baffled, like completely caught off guard and confused. And now you're at the top hospital 
quite frankly, in the world at Boston Children's. And you have this top team who's looking at you like, we have no idea what just happened. And then she stayed on life support for seven days. And it was like a really, really, I mean, the most brutal of my life. So being present for her when, you know, like the moment intuition knew, like she didn't look good to me. She was, you know, just the way that the doctors were talking about her situation and doctor speak, you're kind of like, I knew enough anatomy and physiology. That was what I taught in high school. Yeah. Like I knew enough about things to like be really like put me into a space where I couldn't be naive and just like listen to like head nod, but I didn't know near enough to understand. So it was this really strange trippy space. So, so that, you know, when her heart failed that moment of like, literally there was this moment of, um, you know, I don't necessarily need to go into the actual trauma because I, sometimes I feel like can, there can be secondary trauma from like hearing about yeah. it, right? If we, if we want some, to talk about it, that's okay too. Though. Yeah, no, no, I it's it's I I well, I'm, I'm bebopping around recognizing too that's also trauma, right? Like yeah. <laughs> getting in the way of a coherent story. Yeah. So there was a moment where the nurse pulled me aside because I just kept saying, you know, fight, fight, try like essentially try harder, Mia, like telling her, like almost like cheering her on. And she just looked at me and like caught my eyes and said, let her rest. And I'm thinking like, she's saying like, let her die because you, mm -hmm. you watch movies and TV shows. And I didn't know that the technology that they were wheeling down the hallway was going to save her life. And so she let her rest. It was the, another one of those moments, kind of like when I was with my mom in the car and she asked me if I wanted to swim where I felt like a cellular shift. And I went, okay, let her rest, like rest, rest isn't bad. Like right. rest, rest is going to save her life. Rest is life giving. So this, that was the first really, like you talk about those deepest beliefs that are limiting yeah. and contribute to so much of the suffering. And then the other one was to just try harder. There was literally nothing I could do. Right. So mm -hmm. that idea of, well, I should have done this differently or I should have like nothing I could have done within my control that, so I learned that through healing and therapy of like, there was no trying harder that is going to stop us from experiencing hard things in life, you know? So, or protect us from pain. Like you were saying, like, if I just say the perfect thing, like we can't avoid risk and life is full of these curveballs. So that was, that was a huge, so those two kind of core beliefs shattered, you know, like being in that space of recognizing what was happening and then the healing that happened after that. I mean, I don't, so the perfectionist pathways are really well-traveled and they're, they exist in my mind, right? Like they're yeah. there. And also it opened my like eyes and perspective to just a whole new way of seeing the world, you know, where I'm just not like, I, I lived my life you know, you asked about retirement, like on this treadmill where I was constantly chasing, it's like constantly the next thing, check off the next thing with when anything would happen, any small success or something like worth enjoying, I was like too busy and already onto the next thing. So it's like, it didn't, there's no soaking in the moments. So, you know, that's why I found mindfulness to be so healing yeah. on this journey. Yes. Yeah, same that mindfulness changed my life that was that was mm -hmm. a big one so mm -hmm. when when you broke those core belief patterns what how did how did that feel 
hard and like, you know, you I think I was living triggered. So that was so traumatic because I was witness. I witnessed the code. Like I was right three feet from her and that experience with a history of trauma, right? Like why do some people get PTSD and others don't like that? Like it was nightmares. I mean, it was a really, really rough road for me. Plus she was in the hospital for a very long time and then came out on medicine round the clock. So she, like, I had to wake up every night, like every two hours, she had to have medicine so that she'd stay alive. So that, you know, how did it feel? I was like, I don't know how I'm going to function. Like, how do I find my feet again? And I just, so that it it was like a six year journey in therapy of slow immersion into exposure therapy, reorienting to what matters, turning toward fear and turning toward it, like learning how that is that's a skill I feel like we humans like we've got, like we, we just, it's one of the things that we're not very good at and it's hard as heck, right? Like yeah. being able to do that. Um, but if not, then it owns us. So I think that that through, so through that process, I found my way to mindfulness first. And then I would say self-compassion like that came later because I would still get so angry every time I got triggered. Like, if, again, if I just tried hard enough at this healing, I wouldn't get triggered, you know? Um, and then that led me into the space of better understanding like what, like the neural pathways. It sounds like you geek out on that stuff. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. been it's so helpful. Yeah. Helpful in understanding. So what, how I, when you were saying, I'm not sure what language to use, I see the behaviors as like strategies, they were coping strategies. Right. Like that's yeah. what we did to stay safe. Exactly. Because that's what we needed to do. That's you where know? my that's where my compassion came from, which it, mm-hmm. I used to fight these behaviors all the time. Like, why is this here? Why why can't I yeah. stop? And then um within the past two years or so, it, it like finally dawned on me that they were all protective mechanisms from mm-hmm. something that happened probably as a child or in my past, always in your past, right? And they're still happening today, even though those um, threats might not be there anymore. So that's mm-hmm. where, well, like when, when I was growing up, they told me that if you had depression or these things, you had it for life and you were stuck mm-hmm. with it. And then, you know, um, mm-hmm. it was pretty mind boggling to hear that you can you can change your neural pathways and you mm. can grow and you can create new ones and if you don't go down the old ones they seem to dissipate over time mm. and it was like wow so you can literally change your mind the way you change your body you know like yeah. you can adapt it, it it adapts and so that was like okay so i can deal with these patterns now instead of fighting them which is just making mm-hmm. depression and shame that much deeper like i'm mm-hmm. just adding to the grooves but yeah. Sorry. So yeah, it sounds like we 100%. Out. Yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> like I'm just nodding. People can't see it, but I'm nodding yeah. because that, yeah, it's exactly that. And I think that's so empowering like that yeah. idea that we can't change what happened to us. We can go back and heal. We can go back and honor the emotion that's associated with those memories and, and build those new neural pathways. I think that's so powerful. And and then when we, you know, when they're activated and, and we sidestep, right. It's being able to meet ourselves with grace and putting down that belief that like everything's going to fall apart if we're kind to ourselves, you know, that's that. So better understanding like how perfectionism operated and that inner critic and the language around it was so was liberating. Yeah. You know? And I, I asked about like the belief, you know, kind of exploding. Cause for me, 
um, the first time that happened, it felt like just weight was mm. immediately gone when it was like, mm. oh, I don't have to, I don't have to believe that anymore because it was challenged. You know, it was mm. like, I, I don't know what it I, I, I don't have a good analogy for it. It's almost like a bird born in a cage. And then when it finally realizes there's more than the cage, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, there's space. There's so much space mm. and I don't have to be like trapped here anymore. So I had like almost a, an opposite experience as you when you were like, yeah, then it was like six years of. Yeah. <laughs> so work. totally. Yeah. yeah. Mine was like relief. And then that, that like changed my relationship with uh, like medication too. Cause I've been, um, on antidepressants since I was like 10 years old, lithium poisoning, like just this awful past. And I was told I'd be on them the rest of my life. And then that happened mm. and it was like, oh, how do I just do more of that? And mm. because the meds never really worked for me in the way that mm. they were always described. It's like, oh, so it's these behavior patterns and these new ways of looking at things and challenging these things that are mm. actually what's making me feel the way I've always wanted to feel. <laughs> and so that's where the shift kind of happened to me and then instead of trying to avoid everything which it always seemed like don't do things that trigger depression don't do things that Mm -hmm. trigger anxiety which is kind of what I was taught as a kid it Mm -hmm. turned into more of all right how do I go into the things that trigger that and learn from it you know yes with support right always support yeah Yeah, you can't do it by yourself but and and I'm bringing this up because it almost felt like I had to go to a mental health hospital twice to learn these things, which mm-hmm. sem- seemed like a disservice. And I remember sitting in there in 2012 going, shit, if I would have learned this stuff when I was a kid, maybe I wouldn't be mm-hmm. in here right now. Like, why isn't this happening? Which um, is what I want to ask is you're doing so much cool stuff with mental health. Mm-hmm. And it sounds, again, I, I keep, feel like I keep putting words in your mouth, but it sounds like because of these experiences you've had and you've saw that there was another way you're kind yeah. of on the same mission I am is like, how do we give these to people sooner and mm-hmm. create situations? So can you speak a little bit about, there's so many organizations, but some of the stuff you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Well, and I think that what you're saying, like what's coming up for me as I'm hearing you talk about, like, how come I didn't learn this earlier? I think sometimes, and I've learned this from Eric Kusin, who's the founder of Same Here Global. Um, are you familiar with what the work? No, I'll have to look into that one. Oh, I think Eric I follow Thompson. him on Instagram, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in his so in you know many conversations with them, he's just challenged the way that I see things, which is really I love that. It's actually it's it's expanded my perspective and helped me see how you know the way that we talk about mental health is reinforcing to the stigma in so many ways. So it's mm-hmm. like. The, you know, labels for me, naming, naming what I was dealing with, like naming trauma, like naming that was helpful because it gave me a name and it made me feel like I wasn't broken. And like, I, and then I could move the, you know, turn toward tools. And I think that the stigma, like when we, you know, only, you, you can only talk about these things in a mental hospital, right. Or you can only talk about like only licensed clinical professionals can talk about this stuff or like, it's like those people over there have this stuff that they're, and it's like, no, actually all of us, five and five of us navigate challenges. All of us have mental health and it just, and it ebbs and flows. And so when I started to tell my story, just like the whole, you know, not all the parts of it, but a more truer version of that journey to the top of the Olympic podium and included the conversation around mental illness and my, and navigating that and what that looked like, 
being able to say like part of my story and part of my work is to say, it's all of us. Like this is a five and five and it's not just the, you know, it's the conversation cannot solely focus on mental illness. And I think sometimes when we say mental health, we end up what we're really meaning is mental illness. And so this idea that five and five of us impacts all of us. How do we want to talk about it? What are the tools that we can put in place? And so for my, you know, my journey with my own business, um, like I tell you, I, I really was like planning on education being my career. <laughs> yeah. Funny that you, you still know, are though. It sounds like, yeah, yeah it is. I say forever educator. So is to take the high performance skill sets that you know very well as well, right? Of like those positive attributes that we know drive success and achievement and couple those with well-being, like honoring who we are as humans and having a foundation of this grounded humanistic approach of you are a human who's competing. You are a human who's survived or who's striving for excellence and mastery. So because of that, you are going to feel, you're going to have thoughts, you're going to experience this inner world and it's going to impact your behavior. And so I connect, you know, connecting the dots of like where the conversation is in sports, we focus on behavior and, you know, the compound effect. If you do these small steps over time, you get the result you want. Well, like let's back it up to figure out what's driving those steps, what's impacting how we show up and having a real conversation around our emotions and you know, talking about anxiety as a human emotion and how do we want to cope with that? Because I think there is this, like, you know, we can't, there's no room for that. I think it's changing when it comes to sport. I do also think that we have to continue to be explicit with the connection of why is this important to talk about? Um, so in the work that I do, it's, it sounds, it's going to sound like a ton because it, it's, and I'm, I feel very boundaried and very fortunate that I get to work with the clients I do. So at an organizational level, it's, it's around strategic planning. So when I, when I partner or um, work with an organization, it's about what does an initiative look like? What is the, how does the organization want to show up? What do you want to do proactively? How do you want to respond to these kinds of things? And then when it's with the team, you know, a layer down from that with a team, it's really building cultures of well-being where like teammates can have real conversations and not be like, I'm fine. I'm good. You know, and have that. I can't tell you how many times that it's, it, it's continues to exist because this fear of, of judgment of others, right. Of, of feeling yeah. seen. And so learning language and skill set there that is both helping them as human beings, as well as, as driving performance, right. Cause when we're well, and we have coping, we have, a, you know, coping strategies that work for us and we can perform. And then the layer below that is one-on-one and being able to work with individuals, which is cool because sometimes it's coaches um, who are trying to just grow their skill set language-wise, or it's athletes um, through the mentorship program. So that's the work that I do. Um, and then in 2020, I founded Whole Health Sport alongside of two other women, which is really specifically targeting, you know, mental health and, and talking about mental illness and signs and symptoms and all that. So yeah, happy to share and yeah, answer questions because yeah. <laughs> I could talk about it forever. So yeah. <laughs> when, uh, do, do you think a lot of this came from what happened when you were 15 in that really crappy environment you had as a kid and then going into the new one and going, this feels better? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Yes, I think that it it go it's it's it really is from this 
rumbling. So this open heart surgery, I'm like, like literally on the floor underneath the rubble of my life. Like I felt like I was so raw and just exposed. And as I'm standing and trying to find my way, rumbling with that question of, can we have, like, can we achieve at a really high level and be healthy? And it went from can to, yes, we can. Now, how do we teach those skills explicitly? Where did you you realize you could? Like, what was, what was. Yeah. When I started to read the work of Kristen Mack around compassion, and I'll tell you funny story. I'm like, you know, I've, I have winning a gold medal comes with a privilege. Like it opens doors and has, you know, you have conversations with people that are in positions of power and I'm like, knock, knock, like, Hey, I want to talk about compassion because that's the key to resilience in this, you know, at the time, the leader of the the organization, he's like, yeah, right. I I can't fill up room with that. Like, no, like I hear you and I appreciate this. And also, no, there's just not room for that, that conversation. So after being kind of, (laughs) like doors shutting in my face, realizing, okay, so maybe we can't lead with compassion. Maybe that's, we're not ready for that yet. Even though that's so critical, it's so critical to resilience. So it was reading the work of of Kristen Neff. It was reading the work of Brene Brown. And it was really kind of digging into literally going, my husband works at a college. So I would go into the library and I would just continually like sift through literature and find like perfectionism, which the way that Brene Brown describes it resonates so deeply in the way that it's described in literature and like the psychology world is like adaptive and maladaptive and like this whole confusing, it's just not, I don't yeah. find it very helpful. Um, so being able to sift through, I would, I would make, I would like, I spent time, I probably spent three years with my head in research and yeah. trying to figure out what like, okay, so we can do this you know, Kristen Neff has research on how the inner critic drives cortisol levels, you know, like it's just putting these pieces together. And then I built like these six pillars. So I started to map out, you know, the work and it, then it came to, um, finding mindfulness in a way that was packaged. Are you familiar with mindful sport performance enhancement? (laughs) Just like such a mouthful. The, uh, is an organization. Yeah. So Keith, so um, Carol Glass, Keith Kaufman, and Tim Pinot are the three founders. And it's this curriculum that they put together, this book. And it was like, you read it and they're so inclusive, first of all. You don't have to be anyone and to be able to really bring mindfulness into the organist, you know, into your team. Yeah. So they compile basically all the literature to support how mindfulness is connected to flow state. So we know the literature on mindfulness with well-being, right? Anxiety and depression and all of those things and trauma, healing trauma, right? Getting in that midline on online again. Yeah. So they then connected and made the case to connect mindfulness to flow state and peak performance. And so you just, and then the work of Susan David with emotional agility. So I think it was this evolution of pinpointing the skill sets. So then I'm sitting on this and it's like, why would we not want to just like teach this to everyone? Right. Because if we can become, we can achieve more and also like be healthy and have, you know, that transition post-sport. Now we're not rumbling with our identity because we know we're a human being who's competing. We aren't that athlete and that's all we're a full human being. So then the transition. So I tried to go, further and further upstream to figure out what can we put in place also because I have four daughters who love to play sport and I'm like 
they've got big dreams and I'm just like, okay, so how can we do this? You know? Yeah. How do we ride this ride better than, than I did? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Knowing that they're not going to, it's not that they're not going to fall, but if we can stack the protective factors. So there's a slide when I do presentations, it's like, it's this, a line, right. With a mark in the middle and the middle mark is like issues. Like we're going to, whatever that issue is, whether it's mental illness, whether it is injury, physical challenge, whatever that ish issue is, we can't prevent them all from happening, but we certainly can reduce, right. The protective factors can reduce the likelihood, maybe the frequency. And then on the other side of that, we have to ask ourselves, how do we want to respond? So that's also part of this, like, right. When something happens, what do we do? So getting clarity on both of those. So that's, that's the, that was what drove that definitely drives me to do the work. Right. I mean, I think seeing the way that my 18 year old self talked about my body and, you know, here's like you're at the pinnacle of your sport. Like it's supposed to be this magical thing. And it was robbed because of that inner critic, you know, and that experience. What what was that mindfulness, uh, course called or class or book? Oh, MSPE. MSPE. Yeah. So I went down and became, yeah, facilitator of the, it's amazing. It's so good. It sounds like it's right up my alley. Like uh, I mentioned earlier that I did that. I did a year of Zen to, I I, I saw Buddhist monks and they seemed to be the most peaceful people. And I was like, well, I'm not peaceful at all. So I'm going to dive hardcore into this for a year. And it Mm. changed my life to the point where like, uh, I'm constantly watching my thoughts all of the time Mm. now. Where, like there's space between them, which that's what it feels like where I can just go, I don't have to believe that. I don't have to believe that. I don't have to believe that. And that's kind of the mission of this, like one whole life thing is like, just yes. don't believe everything you think. And that's yeah. how we're going to try and drive this home. So yeah, that book sounds right up, right up my alley. You'd love it. You will love it. They actually yeah. have a podcast too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can connect you with them too, if you want. I'm sure yeah, they'd love to talk great. shop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so with all of this th- that you're doing, um, you you so you do talks. You, so you go to places. You do talks. You do. Do you go to like high schools or talk to kids or anything like that at mm-hmm. all? Too? You, yeah. So I do. So the kind of categories of work would be consulting, and that okay. that can go from that organization down to one on one, and then I would keynote. Yeah, keynote speaking, doing workshops and things like that as well, and then the training, the component of like right train mental health first aid and actually certifying adults with that. Because it's an. Are you familiar with it? I gotta get. Yeah. You, no. You yeah. Know. I looked that up. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I yeah. contacted you like a year ago before I started this whole thing, and you're like, "Mental yeah. health first aid, you should check it out first. And it was yeah. Like, yeah. In a way <laughs> that that even existed. It's, it's right. Cool. Yeah. And bringing it's it awesome. into the sporting arena, and so we do work. So with the whole health sport team, we work not just with sport actually, but with also with educators because teachers and professors are finding themselves in these situations where they're front lines, and they're like, "I don't know what to say. I'm not a therapist. What do I? You know." I don't, I don't, or I don't want to go there. And so, yes. Yeah, so that work of, so those are kind of the three buckets of the work I do. Hmm. Is it, has it been pretty rewarding for you? Like, um, I would, I would imagine, cause I mean, that's, that's where my fuel comes from with this. <laughs> like I, I gave this talk a couple of weeks ago and I, I was literally just honest with people. It's like, I'm standing behind the desk and the person before me was not standing behind the desk, but I feel safer back here. And I wish there was a trap door. And like, I literally said, I was just trying to be vulnerable and honest. And I was like, I feel safer behind this podium. So I'm going to continue to stand here. And they all kind of laughed and it was like, but that's, 
And then as it got done, I was like, I stumbled through this whole entire thing because a hundred people showed up. I was expecting like 20. And then, <laughs> oh, wow. yeah, my mind just kind of broke when I saw all the people. And then um, yeah. I had a line of people come up and just ask questions mm-hmm. and share their stories. And I had a dad the next day say that after your talk, I, I was able to, to coach my daughter in a much kinder, gentler way after that. It was like, and what I've been searching for for a long time is that fuel source we were kind of talking about earlier, which mine was coming from this like really painful thing, you know, like Mm. this flight or fight kind of place. Mm. And then that was like, Oh, this feels healthy and good. And Mm. there seems to be an unlimited source of it over here. Mm. And, um, it just it just feels better operating from that place, you know. Mm, it sounds like you're awesome. doing that all the time too. Yeah, which is pretty cool. It would that yeah, and I think that there are times when I that like hustling for the your worthiness, like that those pieces come back and just being reorienting. So that's become a practice, and I think we, that's something you learn as an athlete, right? It's like resetting, like where am I now? Where do I want to go? How yeah, do I test, want to go right? on the way? Yeah, <laughs> you know. So that same what drives me is the impact. And I just love that you are out in the world doing this and like you've changed their lives. Right. So like the power of story, the power of, of of vulnerability and being authentic and real, I think one of the harder parts of doing this work and and the advocacy work is that people want to hear, they do, they want to hear the story. They want to hear the Hallmark version. And so there's a bit, it's, it has taken me time to adjust from the wide eyes and the autographs to this like inward rumbling, heavy stories that are shared after, like, not that I don't want, I I will hold those heavy stories and hold space for them that I, you know, at the the beginning, it kind of activated the self-doubt and like, what am I doing? And am I, you know, should I be sharing this stuff? And like, it's not what people want to hear. Um, and I feel like I've been able to move through that now just with grace of like releasing the expectation that I have that they're supposed to act a certain way. And then the other part of that is when talking about mental health, I think other, you know, there, there's a, a longing for like, just give me the steps. Like, what do I need to do? So my kid doesn't struggle. And you're like, you know, there's no, I can't give you an easy button. It doesn't exist. Yes. Yeah, so training plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't package this all so nicely. We can talk about guideposts. Also, like what you said, it's messy. Yeah. And I think that that is deeply uncomfortable culturally for us. Like we don't like the messy. We want one side or the other. We want clean boxes. And so we, right, don't fit in a box because right. here we've had achieved like athletic excellence. And you then you have parents who are like, well, we want that for our kid. What do we do? And it's like, well, hold on. It's There's more, there's a truer fuller story than what you're seeing highlighted every four years or every two years. Yeah. There's a cost that people don't like to talk about. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I had a, I have a question for you. So have you had people come up to you after talks, just crying or breaking down or anything mm-hmm. like that? And mm-hmm. I had a couple of people do that to me and that was completely unexpected. And I just, <laughs> just want to give them a hug, but I didn't know like, what's what to say or what's appropriate. I was wondering if you had any advice Mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. So that has happened. Um, I think I go into mental health first aider mode at that point. So like I go into my, like, you know, put my mental health first aider hat on and listen, like leaning in with empathy and 
recognizing the impulse to want to fix, right? Cause that's, it's hard to see other people in pain. And I think just meeting them with compassion in that moment. Right. And sometimes I'll say like, you know, feel free to reach out or email or there was one in, you know, situation where we talked about like what the, what, what are the resources? Like who can you talk to? Um, it was a parent and a son. Yeah. So it is, it's cause you're moving them. Like you're there, you know, people, that's the thing that I, I don't know why I get surprised by it still, regardless of what arena you walk into, whether it's corporate America, whether it is high school kids, no matter how they seem to have it all together, there is always this, I just presented to faculty um, at a pretty elite school. And so you think, you know, like we're all dressed up and, yeah. and I'm telling my story and there's like a part, yeah. you like, there's a part of you that's like, Hmm, is this going to resonate with them? And then you come back to know we're like, yes, because we're humans and that's what you're, you're sharing your human story. And so it's going to hit, it's not talked about a lot. So it's going to hit, it's going to strike people. So yeah. I don't know that I have advice other than, you know, showing up being, you know, it is important to, to honor what you're needing, you know, because you're giving so much of yourself. So as you're opening up and being vulnerable, the vulnerability hangover is real, right? Super Feeling real. raw on the other end of it. I had to take I've, a week to, off. <laughs> so that's about right for, for same, right? So yeah. now I know that I need a day before and I need two days after to buffer. So it's like part of how, you know, what's required when we're going. It's not just the hour we're there. It's a whole lot more than that. So being able to be mindful of like a specific strategy. I know I got to get out and walk. I have to do like certain things that help me to regulate again because it is hard. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting you talk mm-hmm. about it. It's almost like recovering from a, like this workout's going to suck. I'm going to need mm-hmm. a couple of days to recover from this one. Mm-hmm. Huh. It's, it's interesting. What's so, your recovery plan? Totally. Yeah. It, and I'm still pretty new at it because for most of my time talking about mental health, it's been to a camera. <laughs> you know? yeah. So there's yeah. not an audience and I don't see the reactions. I see a couple comments, you know, but yeah. other than that, it's been pretty easy. So that one, it was kind of jarring, you know, we're sitting like, mm-hmm. all right, I hate PowerPoints, but all right, here's, I'm going to throw this and then yeah. you go yeah. say it. And yeah, it was, it was kind of nuts. So, um, I, so I have this theory, theory that is, does it all start with self-awareness for you? Mm-hmm. Is that kind of where, is that the beginning of this road for, for most people? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, I think awareness is, I, w- I would say like the way I talk about awareness is it's like the critical first step. Okay. I like that. Mm-hmm. You know, because without it, I mean, that, that's, that's the, and that's actually part of like, when we get into the nitty gritty of like flow state, you have like, there has to be some level of self-awareness, right? Emotional awareness, attentional awareness of where's my mind, where's, what am I experiencing here um, before we can then regulate it. So I absolutely think, yeah, having that awareness and it's not easy, right? Something, oh, no. like, yeah. you know, it's hard to, when we're so used to running and numbing and like, if we're so afraid of feeling pain that I think it's hard for us to pause and sit with the awareness because it it's pain you know we have that means sitting with the pain but it's like yeah. changing that relationship with pain can help a whole bunch you know like mm-hmm. i know i've said this in a, another podcast but there's like a i don't know if you're a south park fan but there's an episode where <laughs> where butters uh like he broke up with his girlfriend and he was sad and he was crying and one of the other boys comes over and goes hey you, it, 
you don't have to be sad. Let's let's go do something. He's like, no, I'm I'm really happy. I'm really happy. I'm sad because <laughs> by being this sad, I must have felt something really good on the other side. Yes. And it was like, I'm watching this show where like Kenny dies every episode. You know, in <laughs> South Park, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, that's the most, that's the deepest thing I've ever <laughs> seen. And, yeah. I, I, so it's so real though. It's that's real. True. Yeah. And yeah. so that that episode changed my relationship with pain in a lot of ways. Like mm-hmm. I need going into it, paying attention and seeing if there was something on the other side that and it's in, in the internal messages. And what do we, you know, how, when, when we think about the physical pain, the burning muscles, like we, if we were like, we, there's a level of acceptance there, right. There's a level of awareness and how to, how to, you know, although I think a lot of athletes maybe dissociate <laughs> so yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. learning how to harness the pain and not be afraid of it and move into that fight or flight space. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Uh, so I ask every guest this at the end, but is there, if you had a magic wand to change anything in mental health, what, what would you use mm. it for? Or the world, I guess it's your wand. You can do whatever you want with it. Yeah. <sighs> I or think, people too. Yeah. It doesn't have to I be think that it's like, if I had a magic wand, I'd be like helping like, so individually, just loading us up with grace for ourselves. Cause I think that that's what stops us from the stillness is we're like hurt people, hurt people. And the judgment that comes out and the shame that we feel and all of the things that like cause us to turn toward each other and judge and, you know, categorize and all of that is, is really coming from that place of pain. So being able to, offer ourselves more grace and compassion and realizing like we are human and this level of acceptance for our humanity. Cause at the end of the day, like that's our connection and like that common humanity is such a powerful, you know, so it's, yeah. So I feel like that, that, that's like at the root level, um, which would then allow for more conversations with curiosity and less judgment. Yeah. So love, and I would say love and compassion and grace. Can I do three things? <laughs> you, it's your wand. You can do whatever you want. Ask for more wishes. There's no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, mm-hmm. how, how can people get a hold of you if, if they want to? Uh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I would say SamanthaLivingstone.com okay. is my, is the website. And then I'm on social media. So Facebook and Instagram. Are you on TikTok? Are you on that route? I'm trying. I'm, I'm <laughs> struggling to figure out how to make it work. Yeah. But I didn't do Snapchat when that came in. So I'm just, yeah, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. But yeah, I would say smithlivingstone.com is probably the best way. To, and then to be in touch with me, you can con- there's a form to send an email straight. Perfect. Straight to me. So. Yeah. And I'll put all these links in the description too, so people can find you easier yeah. and stuff like awesome. that. Awesome. Well, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having these beautiful conversations. Truly. It's like, so important man she's just one of the most amazing human beings i've ever met let's talk about mental health first aid just a little bit last week she offered me a chance to take mental health first aid and the the best way i can describe it is just think if you are certified in cpr or first aid and somebody has some kind of a, a an issue like they're choking they're drowning um they have a heart attack First Aid CPR gives you the tools to be able to help that person in crisis until professional help arrives. Mental Health First Aid does the exact same thing. They're not teaching you how to be a therapist. They're not teaching you how to solve these problems, but they're teaching you how to help somebody in a crisis so you can get the help they need. I just find it absolutely amazing and it was extremely beneficial for me as I have people reach out to me 
all the time. <laughs> and now I have a, an even better way of understanding how to help them. So I can't recommend it enough. So if you guys are curious about anything in this podcast, head over to samanthalivingstone.com and her whole in her brand new venture, Whole Health Sport. If you want to support what I'm doing, head over to owlmentalhealth.com, owlmh.com, grab a shirt, and uh, yeah, that'll help out tremendously. Life is meant to be experienced, and curiosity will get you there. Stay curious, everybody, and uh, I'll see you in the next one.